0: This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org party today.
1: From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today, Susan Bauer Wu, is the president of the Mind and Life Institute, an organization co-founded by the Dalai Lama in 1987 to bring science and contemplative wisdom together to better understand the mind and create positive change in the world. Dr. Bauer Wu holds a PhD in psychoneuroimmunology and is the author of Leaves Falling Gently, living fully with serious and life-limiting illness through mindfulness, compassion, and connectedness. Her new book is A Future We Can Love, How We Can Reverse the Climate Crisis with the Power of Our Hearts and Minds. The book is reviewed in the May-June 2023 issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Susan Bauerwu, welcome to Spirituality and Health podcast.
0: Thank you for having me, Rabbi. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: I'm really excited to talk with you. The topic certainly is of of interest, but I I want to do something completely off the wall in the beginning. You've been in conversation with His Holiness the Dalai Lama for decades, and as it says on the cover of your new book, A Future We Can Love, the book is inspired by the conversation between the Dalai Lama and Greta Thunberg. This alone could be the subject of a podcast, you know, all in in and of itself. But I want to talk to you about talking to the Dalai Lama, and, and here's why. So, years ago, I was with the Dalai Lama. We were in New Delhi. We were at an event celebrating the 150th birthday of Swami Vivekananda. He was the keynote speaker, and I was one of the presenters. And we all gathered in the green room. And I was sitting next to him, literally right next to him, less than a foot apart, maybe eight inches between us. And he was relaxed and open and chatting with whoever came over to speak with him. I was sitting right there. I didn't have to move. I didn't have to walk over to talk with him. I I could have talked with him just because he was next to me. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't say a thing. I sat there for half an hour, totally, I don't know if I was starstruck or whatever it was. I, I kept saying to myself, what do you say to the Dalai Lama? I guess I, I couldn't say a thing. He looked at me. He smiled at me. I smiled back. But I couldn't say a word. So I want to know what it was like when you first started talk to, talking with him. How did it change over time? And what? Give us a sense of the person that you know and have that you have known for so long as a conversation partner.
0: Hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that story. I can imagine being in, in your shoes because I've been there before. And I first want to convey that you actually were communicating with him by your presence. And he, he completely connected with you as a person would be my guess and energetically. And he speaks volumes even without words, and his English is, you know, quite broken, and he communicates with the fullness of his presence that goes well beyond words. The first time that I met him, and I sat in conversation with him, was actually about 10 years ago, it was when I, I more like eight years ago, when I became the president of the Mind and Life Institute. So while our organization, Mind & Life, has been doing events with him since 1987, my first time doing work with him was in 2015. And I will tell you, the moment I sat next to him, my fears actually went away. Any kind of anticipatory anxiety and worries just melted away. And it has been that way throughout the years in the in the many times that I've been with him. And he exudes fully inside and out every cell of his body. He, I think he exudes love and compassion without being too cheesy. He really, really does. He can go from care and concern to seeing somebody in the audience and next to him that's suffering and responding to that to actually breaking out into great laughter and joking around. He's a great jokester. And he can pick up when people are feeling uneasy. And when he does that, he does everything he can just in in the way he shows up to try to put you at ease. And what I've noticed with His Holiness is that he's incredibly curious. So besides being compassionate, he's genuinely curious. He wants to learn. And he has an attitude of not knowing all the answers. You know, he likes to ask questions, and they're, you know, really authentic questions of wanting to help him to learn and to be a better person. So it's been really an honor for me to spend the time with him and next to him and to see the example of how how he lives and leads.
1: He is absolutely... An authentic human being. I mm-hmm. mean, I've seen him in other situations where he's you know, sort of walking through a hotel and just stopping and talking with employees, and you know, yeah. much to the chagrin of his handlers. I, I, it seemed to me. <laughs> I, so I wasn't going to mm-hmm. share this story, but let I'll, let me uh-huh. tell you another story. Not not about me. I uh-huh. wasn't there. But one of my beloved teachers, now deceased, was Sister Jose Hobde, who is a Catholic nun. And a Native American medicine woman, and she got to meet His Holiness, and they, you know, they told her that you know she'll get the kata, is now what it's called, the white scarf.
0: Yeah, the and, katas.
1: Right. So she'll receive it, and then she hands it to him, and he hands it back to her. Uh-huh. And they said, just don't touch him. And she's a very s- small woman, and and he's large, and so she's waiting in line. She comes up, she hands him and he takes it, and while his hands are occupied, she reaches up and grabs his cheeks like a, you would a, a little baby, because uh-huh. Sister Jose is is elderly and, and was older than the, uh, the Dalai Lama, grabs his cheeks and pinches his cheeks like a, like you would a little baby, and she says to him, I can do this to you, you're my baby brother. And he just, cracks up mm. you know he's just laughing the two of them are just laughing
0: mm-hmm.
1: but the the llamas around him are totally mortified that this woman would touch him and do that to him they saw it as a great insult he seemed to see it in for what it was this act of love between two holy beings
0: absolutely so, i could definitely see see him doing that and not being perturbed by it at all because yeah. she was being authentic. It was a, yeah. it was an authentic exchange. And he loves when people just treat him like a, just a regular person. He often says that, you know, I'm just a, you know, I'm just one of 8 billion people just like all of you. And and the more that others can relax and be themselves, then they're living examples. And I think that he probably really respected her for doing that.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. She's very; she was very much the same way. Mm. Okay, so enough stories about His Holiness. Let's mm-hmm. let's go to the book. Early on in the book, you write: "Today, we humans have no excuse for not knowing about the climate crisis." So I, I agree with that. We have no excuse yet, despite all the studies, all the dire headlines, all the images, still photographs, videos of. Yeah, you know, the expanding deserts, the rising seas, villages, towns, even cities all around the globe flooding. It's fair to say that, at least to my estimation, it seems to me most Americans anyway are woefully and and I would say willfully ignorant of what's happening. I mean, in the place I live in the middle of Tennessee, if you bring up climate change, they say it's a hoax. So. I have two questions around this assertion that today we humans have no excuse for not knowing. Why do you think we're still in denial?
0: Well, I don't think everybody's in denial. I th- I think a lot less people are in denial than there used to be. And it's as you mentioned, because I think that people are actually being affected by by climate change and more extreme weather right before their eyes. If they aren't directly, it's in the news and it's, you know, affecting their family perhaps in another part of the country. But the extreme storms, the fires, you know, every, everything as you, as you mentioned is happening. And so I acknowledge that people do have different views on climate change. And, and I, I'm not here to analyze why there is such a difference but i think that even those people that may seem like more deniers we we will agree i think we all can agree that we overconsume and there's pollution and that the way we are living is harming other humans and other life forms and so i don't know what to say except you know people relate to what they can see, what they experience and how it affects them and their family and their communities. That's what makes it real. And if people are disconnected from what's happening around them on a day-to-day basis, then they're not going to see it. But I think one of the first things we could do is to is to begin to to just to to wake up and to look at the patterns and the cycles of this of the seasons and seeing and asking ourselves is it what it was when we were we were children
1: and, and it's not i mean right i mean in my town if anyone if if people would just be honest about it it's you know we're in the middle of may or not even the middle of may and it's already the temperatures that we used to have in the middle of july we we lost spring yeah it's not it's not the silent spring, it's the absent spring. We went from, you know, winter right into summer.
0: And I'd add to that, from where I am in Virginia, we really didn't even have winter.
1: Yeah, neither did we.
0: It, it was it was, you know, spring started showing up in January. So so you're right. Well but, but I, I think it's a really good question that you ask. Why does anybody deny it? But I do think that there are fewer and fewer deniers. I know people that used to be deniers that aren't anymore. And I, and I think that just using the the term climate change or global warming, it's a trigger for people and maybe rather, and, and I, I, so I think maybe we can be skillful in what, how we engage in conversations with people. And that's what I was, I was hoping in writing this book. So the, the book, which is called A Future We Can Love, was inspired by a conversation. It was inspired by a conversation that the Mind and Life Institute hosted with the Dalai Lama and with Greta Thunberg. And the way I wrote it was written like a conversation. I bring in a variety of different spiritual leaders and indigenous teachers, climate scientists, and activists. And it's written like a conversation. And the hope is that it's going to inspire conversations because the moment we can lean into something that we're maybe afraid of, that we think is scary, that we think we don't know the right thing to say, the moment we can take down our guard and to engage in conversation, that's the beginning of change. And I really think it's important to have these cross generational conversations. And that was part of what I think people were really drawn to the conversation with the Dalai Lama and Greta because they're generations apart. They're cultures apart. They live in different parts of the world and have very different orientations. But at the same time, they could engage in a really meaningful exchange of ideas to realize that different perspectives, listening to each other in, in ways where Neither one alone has the only has the answers, but maybe collectively, together, we can learn from one another and realize that we can become part of the solution.
1: And I think the book does a wonderful job of that, of making it conversational and, and letting us hear a variety of voices. So you're you're absolutely not only are you correct about that, but you're successful in in doing that. Uh, there's no but here. There's an and. Yeah. And there's there's another dimension to it that maybe I'm, I'm going to overstate this, but I, I was really taken by this. And it happens early in the book, in the first third, I guess, in the book, where you bring up the Buddhist practice. Maybe it's it's specifically a Tibetan Buddhist practice of Tonglen.
0: hmm
1: And and this is a weird way to get into this Tonglen, but I was typing Tonglen, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. using Microsoft Word, and there's the automatic spell corrector thing that I have. And it changes it to tangled. So (laughs) in my mind, I thought, oh God, what a stupid, why does it do that? But then I thought, well, wait, from a scientific basis, you know, like, quantum mechanics, everything is entangled. Or from a Buddhist perspective, everything is interdependent. And that's why Tonglen works. And so, let me try to make sense out of what I'm saying.
0: That's really beautiful. That's really cool that you're making Uh, that
1: connection. That's the the rabbi part of me. I love (laughs) it. (laughs) Taking the language and playing with that. So, so, you know, the subtitle of the book is, We Can Reverse the the Climate Crisis with the Power of Our Hearts and Minds. Mm -hmm. And, And I'm assuming, And you can correct me on this, obviously, but I'm assuming it's a transformed heart and a transformed mind because the the hearts and minds that we had, that we have, the normal ones, are the ones that created the crisis. And it's sort of like you can't fix this with the same mindset that created it. Mm -hmm. And so how do you change hearts and minds? And I think, having done the practice myself for quite a while, one of the ways to do this is through the practice of tong len but i've never thought about using tong len in the context of climate change climate change you're dealing with the climate crisis so mm-hmm. and i know you can't lead us in the practice in, in a podcast i don't think but if you could explain the the practice of tong len and then how it fits i think that would be a, a tremendous gift to the listener
0: Sure. Sure. Well, tonglen is a, is a practice of taking away suffering, into taking and re- receiving. It's a reciprocal practice, and we bre- essentially can envision through our m- mind's eye taking away the suffering of others, like really taking in. Taking away, but taking in the suffering of others. And it can be through this image of of heaviness, of of smoke, of heat, and taking it in and internally transforming it, metabolizing it, and breathing out clarity, coolness, and you just breathing in the suffering. And you're, in some ways, breathing out love. And it's if we think about the suffering that is all around us in the nature of the loss of species and the loss of trees and the various loss of life and even the loss of of human lives, it can be paralyzing. It can just freeze us in our tracks. And by do, if we freeze and we just feel like we can't do anything, then we're not going to show up and be better versions of ourselves. So practices like Tonglen help us to not feel so, so frozen, so inadequate, so isolated, so by ourselves. And it's really, really powerful. And I'd love to you know maybe hear from you, Rabbi, what you've noticed in, in doing
1: Tonglen. So, one of the things I think is so powerful about the practice and and just in general, and then we can maybe use it in the context of climate is that talk if, if it's, it's to me it's a kind of compassion practice mm-hmm. but I can't feel compassion for the other as long as the other is other mm-hmm. so when and, and, and compassion means shared suffering or suffering with mm-hmm. so I breathe in the suffering of the rainforest or i breathe in the suffering of the ocean or i breathe in the suffering of my neighbor mm-hmm. and by doing that i'm i'm in a state of shared suffering so i'm in a state of compassion mm-hmm. and by being in that state of shared suffering i i <laughs> if you say i feel your pain then it sounds like bill clinton and it sounds silly but but because i'm sharing that suffering there is no there is no self, there is no other. It's just this one mm-hmm. seamless, non-dual phenomenon happening. And then I have two choices. I can either, like you said, be overwhelmed by it, fr- frozen, now I'm stuck, oh my God, now I'm this horrible suffering, i got to run away from it. Mm-hmm. Or I can realize that the I that is breathing this in is not Rami, mm-hmm. right? That it's not my ego, the eye that's, that's breathing in the suffering of the world is actually the infinite, you know, if we want to use maybe Buddhist language, it's a Buddha mind, you know, or Dharmakaya or the infinite, you know, the universe itself, however you want to language it using Buddhist terms, but it's, you realize as you, or this is my experience, you realize, I realize as I breathe this in that it isn't me, it's not the ego that's doing this that I'm breathing it in but I am so much larger than the darkness I'm breathing in so mm-hmm. it's like it dissipates in the greater capital s self buddhists don't like that but mm-hmm. the greater reality capital r reality that that's the true nature of things so it that that smoke that denseness that suffering dissipates so that so that when I breathe out, I'm breathing out that purity, which is the natural state of the infinite, of the infinite period. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that make any sense? It, it
0: makes total sense. It's really, really spot on. And and we could do that. We could do Tonglen for anyone that is suffering, an individual, a community, a forest, you know, the the rivers.
1: And then, when you do, you become that river. You You become become that forest. You become that exactly individual. And I think that's what scares people because they see the suffering. I don't want that. I have enough of my own suffering. I don't want your suffering. But that's because they they're working from the relative, and that's not what we're talking about. Right. We're talking about accessing the absolute dimension, where you have plenty of room for the world's suffering without being. And I guess you could say, trapped by it.
0: Yeah, it's it's infinite.
1: Yeah, you're you're infinite. You know the 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 the, the truest you. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, I, I'm not I'm not a, in any way an expert on any of this, but certainly not on Tibetan Buddhism. But from the the mind only school of Buddhism or the the. I think it's Banki's Zen. My, my training in Buddhism is from the Zen side of things. And they talk about the unborn. So from the perspective of the unborn mm-hmm. and the unlabeled, the, you know, my original being before I became, before that became mm-hmm. Rami, that's infinite and that's unstained. That's, you know, Buddha mind. And from that perspective, I can take in all of this and allow it and allow the, the, the pain to, to dissipate and then breathe out the love, the peace, the purity, the healing into the world. It's sort of like, and I have to stop talking because I really mm-hmm. want to hear from you, but it, as we're talking, it's like, you know, in a sense, the the symbiotic nature or relationship be, between me and the trees. Mm-hmm. The trees produce oxygen. I don't, but I need oxygen to survive so the, the trees exhale oxygen i inhale the oxygen i then transform the oxygen to what is it carbon dioxide dioxide which they need to survive i exhale what they need so i'm breathing in their exhalation yeah. exhaling their inhalation and together we both survive and and that's what's happening i think in tong lin in a way i'm breathing yeah. in their suffering and breathing out the the love that they need.
0: Yeah. We interbreathe with trees. And that yeah. And that yeah. is what in a sense of what the Tonglen practice is.
1: Yeah. Like this and, inter
0: interbreathing practice.
1: Yeah. And we inter are to use Tiknan Han's temp- mm-hmm. terminology, we inter are with all reality. We are. Okay. So we have solved everything now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but I but I do think that it, it does boil down to this awareness of our interdependence. And that's, that's where it's part of changing our hearts and minds is just becoming in tune with that and recognizing that and that our, you know, inner beliefs influence our, our outer actions and Absolutely. they, and they matter.
1: Yeah. I, 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 couldn't agree more. And just to highlight it, if you have, you know, if you're listening to this and you're trying to so, say, so what can I do? I i I'm, I'm, I'm cognizant of the time and and how little time we have left. But there's so many things you can do, and the book talks about different things. But it seems to me, I mean, there's so many books that will tell you what to do and your carbon footprint and all of that. But this kind of practice is, is, I mean, because someone's going to say, oh, how do I change my heart? Every religion tells me about changing my heart. You know, I and you even write later in the book, you say, we all have the capacity to wake up, we have the capacity to change. You know, there are, let me get my numbers in my head here. I think there's 400 million Buddhists and over a billion Hindus and two and a half billion Christians. You know, there's there's about four billion people, or that's, I think that's half the world's population who belong to a religion that talks about moksha, liberation if you're a Hindu, or metanoia, that, you know, getting beyond the egoic mind if you're a Christian, or mm-hmm. bodhi, you know, if you're a Buddhist, wisdom. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's part of the traditions, and yet there's tiny numbers of people who have actually done it. So people are going to say, oh, look, this is, I, I can't change my heart or my mind, is too much. But it's not and, and this is going to be a question, I promise. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to preach. But it's not that you're going to change your heart and mind. It's that there are practices like Tong Lin, which you can do, and that will change your heart and mind. Have you experienced that transformation in in the practice, through the practice?
0: Yeah, and, and the, the book actually talks about a variety of practices, right? And yeah. some of them are formal practices, and some of them are, are simpler practices that are accessible to anybody from any type of spiritual tradition and and cultural orientation. So, for example, the practice of wonder, right? Like, taking, you know, a walk with awe, like just going on, like springtime is a wonderful time, or any time of year. We just go for a walk and realize that wow, wow, wow. There's much more beauty in this world that I'm even seeing on a day-to-day basis because I'm not really awake to it. And then the more that we can begin to be appreciate and to be in tune with nature, for example, that's what we realize we want to do more to protect her. And if we're yeah. not and if and we're if we're not connected to you know to the world around us just to, na- to nature and to our neighbors, then' we're, then we won't do anything then we're not going to change our actions but it so it does it our mindset and how we see things, how we open our hearts, choose to open our hearts or not, it does make a difference
1: you know I take my Eight-year, my seven-year-old grandson, mm-hmm. and we go for, we go for walks. I mean, he's into, you know, he's not, he's not a mystic. You know, I'm not kind of want to, I don't want to romanticize my, my seven-year-old. So he, he does all kinds of seven-year-old things. But we do, we do go out. We do go, you know, in the woods or whatever, and and we'll take, oh, like a three square inch piece of tree, mm-hmm. and just let's just focus on that. And if you just look at that, there's all kinds of things happening in that, you know, little, little creatures walking on the bark and under the bark. And, you know, there's, there's a whole world in that little Mm -hmm. section of the tree, or you take the same small section on the ground and there's all kinds of beings happening there. And, and so there is a, and he falls into a natural sense of awe just by look at this and look at that one. And then he has the similar reaction with dead things. Animals. Mm-hmm. We were out a couple of weeks ago. There was a bird that had, we saw. F- that had, we didn't see it die, but it was laying on the ground. It was dead. And, and just today there was a possum that looks like it got hit crossing the street. And, you know, we carefully, we didn't move it, but we didn't have any way to do that. That was safe. But we did we did pray over it. Mm-hmm. And and he was fascinated by—I don't know what you call it—but sort of the the awesomeness of death. I don't want to say lifelessness because it really isn't lifeless. It's just there's all kinds of activity that we couldn't see yet. I mean, soon there'll be all kinds of beings, you know, living in the the dead possum because, like, there's all kinds of beings in the tree and on the grass. But we—you couldn't see that yet. It was too new a, a kill, but. Still, he felt this awe. It wasn't like he was repulsed by death. That was also awe inspiring to him. And and I think that that's, you know, the practices that you talk about in the book and and these different things that you've been mentioning are all ways to cultivate awe. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately, and, and maybe I'm simplifying it, but I'll get your take on this. It seems to me ultimately, if there's any mindset that's going to save us, it's going to be the cultivation of awe and wonder.
0: Well, I think, that's a, I think it's a really, really important piece because connecting what I, what I heard in your story of your grandson was not only the awe, but also a spirit of curiosity, which is really, really a wonderful mindset. May he never lose that. And also a preciousness of life. And by having like this awe of death, I also think that there's a reflection of how he's seeing life itself as being precious. And those experiences may, I, I absolutely believe those experiences will affect the way he's going to live his life, particularly if he has more and more of those experiences. and. So if we can live our lives in a way where we are awake to the miracles before our eyes, the beauty before our eyes, we're going to want to continue to show up in ways that are going to expand that, that beauty and that goodness. We're not going to want to shut the door on that anytime
1: soon, and and I think we're in a sense hardwired for that, and you can see it in little kids. But I'll, I'll tell you, cause we I'm are proud hard, grandf- we
0: are hardwired for it. We absolutely are. But something happens over time; we lose it, right?
1: And that's the thing. You know, like you said, may he never lose his sense of curiosity. But he he went out for a walk with his dad. My my grandson went out for a walk with his dad, and in the woods, and he just didn't disappear, but he went off by himself. And my son found him. He's sitting on a, he climbed up a little hill with his flat rocks, and he's sitting on a flat rock, cross-legged, his hands like in his lap, like, a, like, like he was sitting in Zazen. And his eyes are closed, and he's, you know, I would say, he's meditating. And his dad said, you know, where did you learn to do that? And he says, oh, my mind taught me. he just naturally was just you know in in a meditative state so yeah hopefully he doesn't lose that either
0: well you know i don't think we ever lose it like i honestly i just it's sort of you know it's like the sun in the vast sky right it's always there it's always shining and the clouds come and cover it up but it's always shining. It's always there. And to me, that's sort of our, you know, our essence and our, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, you could say it's our Buddha nature. It's, it's there. This, this primal way of being that is really, is unchangeable. And it's, it, it's there if we, if we allow ourselves to begin to notice our habits that are covering up our ability to be, you know, who, who we already are,
1: so last question then, is that where you've assuming you have hope, and, and I assume you do because you wrote this very hopeful book, mm-hmm. is that where is that what feeds you this hope, this this knowing the sun is there behind the clouds?
0: Uh, there I believe it's not too late, and there there is hope. And as long as you know as Joanna Macy says, as long as where things are uncertain, there's hope and there's possibility and we have to like to me there's no alternative to, to live my life without believing that there, that I can make a difference and I'll share with you one, one very quick story and it was shared with me by my friend lama willa baker and it was when she was in costa rica and she had a chance to observe the leatherback female turtles returning back to the beach and they're returning to the beach where they were born 15 to 25 years before the mother turtle is devoted the mother turtle goes back to the beach lays her eggs with her flippers she covers them up with sand she goes back to the sea and she doesn't know what's going to happen but she knows she's doing the right thing, and she's ensuring the best chances she can for her babies by doing the right thing. And so me writing this book and the way that I'm just trying to show up as a regular person and global citizen, you know, Rabbi, our job is to stay present and to do the right thing as best we can with the hope and the intention that our actions matter and will make a difference for our children and our grandchildren and generations after them.
1: Amen to that. And that's your next book, The Way of the Mother Turtle. <laughs> that's a good, a good title. Our guest today, Susan Bauer-Wu, is the author of A Future We Can Love, How We Can Reverse the Climate Crisis with the Power of Our Hearts and Minds. The book is reviewed in the May-June 2023 issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about her work at mindandlife.org. Susan Bauer-Wu, thanks for joining us on the Spirituality and Health podcast.
0: Well, you're welcome. And thank you, Rabbi. It's really been a delight connecting with you.
1: Thank you. I love talking with you. Spirituality and Health podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Trupiano, and our executive producer is Zach Avery. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And if you're not already a subscriber to Spirituality and Health magazine, please become one at spiritualityhealth.com from everyone at Spirituality and Health Magazine, we thank you for your support. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little
0: help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life Podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.